Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Pleased to have you here. Great uh, to be here. As, as, as uh, Adam said, I'm a proud member of the Common, uh, Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors, and the Commonwealth Club is the oldest and largest public affairs forum in the country. And we have a lot of different topics, some of them quite esoteric, complex, and uh, 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 not well understood. Tonight we're going to talk about sleep, which is something we all know a lot about. And I should mention that uh, Eric Prather recently wrote a book, which I just read, called The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest, which I will recommend. And I think after you hear him, you'll want to get it too if you haven't already had it. But I should uh, say a little bit more about uh, Dr. Prather, who is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at UCSF here in San Francisco. He runs the sleep lab there, which has both uh, clinical work, seeing patients, and research work as well. So we'll benefit from both of those uh, uh, kind of streams of your expertise. And as Adam said, please put any questions in the uh, chat in the uh, YouTube box, and uh, Adam will bring them to me so we can ask them during the program. So... Let's get started. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that everyone listening right now has had experience with sleep in the last 24 hours and probably just about every night of their lives <laughs> as well. So we all think we know a lot about sleep, and I think we all know that we feel better if we get a good night's sleep. So feeling better is a great reason to get a good night's sleep. But what are other benefits of getting enough sleep? Why should we care? Yeah, sleep. Well, so first I want to say thank, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I'm a proud listener of the Commonwealth Club. Uh, and, you know, so sleep is such a critical part of our humanness, of our, it's a biological imperative. It's as necessary as food and water and oxygen. In fact, we can live longer without uh, food and water than we can without sleep. Really? Right. And in part because it, it provides so many critical benefits, both to our cognition, to our um, cardiovascular system, to our immune system. It, you know, makes us better people. <laughs> when we get sleep, uh, you know, we're better partners, we're better parents, we're more empathetic, and we're kind of a better version of ourselves. And, and you know, we've learned a lot in the sleep science over the last, um, you know, several decades but we're still kind of chipping away at what it is that makes sleep so special, like why we sleep. Mm-hmm. But it's clear that if we don't, we just can't survive. We know that from research. So what about the flip side? What are some of the downsides besides not feeling so good yeah. if we don't get enough sleep? Yeah, so if we don't get enough sleep, um, you know, we don't feel as good. We're more sensitive to stressors when they happen in the world, I always tell my patients that when we don't get sleep, kind of little things feel like big things to us, right? But also biologically, sleep is so critical. So, you know, if we don't get sufficient amounts of sleep, and this is something that's just evolving in the science, is, you know, sleep seems to be critical for helping to clear our brain of kind of metabolites that build up throughout the day. So we've kind of begun to... Uh, recognize the glymphatic system as such a key piece of kind of clearance within the brain. And when we don't get sufficient amounts of sleep, that doesn't happen as well. I do a lot of work on the immune system. Mm -hmm. And so we know that when people don't get sufficient amounts of sleep, our immune system doesn't seem to do as well. We're perhaps more susceptible to infectious illnesses. We uh, don't respond as well to vaccines. 
which obviously became kind of much more timely over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, sleep just plays just a strong role in making our systems work better. So um, I'm assuming everyone on, on this uh, and listening to this uh, is interested in sleep and sleeping better. Um, and some people have big problems with sleep. But how big a problem is it? How many people, how many Americans really have su- substantial sleep problems? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's, it's shockingly high. Um, you know, I think, you know, the data suggests that, you know, 30% of Americans report insomnia symptoms regularly. And so if you kind of scale that up, that's, that's almost 100 million Americans, right? So that's a, that's a really big problem. Beyond just sleep disturbances, mm-hmm. a large proportion of the population also gets what's called insufficient amounts of sleep. So, mm-hmm. you know, getting short sleep duration. So the American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommends for adults to get at least seven hours of sleep per night. Mm-hmm. And just a lot of people aren't getting that. And what we know from the epidemiologic data, kind of the population level kind of viewpoint is that when people are on that short sleep duration group, they're more likely to develop cardiovascular disease, more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. As I mentioned, we're kind of learning more about risk towards neurodegenerative diseases. And kind of not to be outdone, short sleep duration is also a predictor of premature mortality. Wow. So there's a lot of Americans who aren't getting enough sleep or are having sleep problems of some sort. Does that vary by gender, by race, by age? Yeah, so, you know, there are kind of growing understandings about kind of differences in populations. I mean, we certainly know that, um, you know, if we look at kind of men and women, women tend to report kind of worse sleep quality. Um, and some of this might be linked to kind of changes across the life course and kind of the, through kind of perimenopause and menopause. Uh, but men tend to get less sleep in general. And then there is kind of something, something that I'm really passionate about. There's kind of a growing appreciation for uh, sleep inequities um, kind of within populations. So, you know, so black Americans, you know, routinely are shown to get kind of less sleep, less quality sleep compared to kind of white counterparts, individuals that are in kind of on the lowest uh, rung when it comes to socioeconomic status tend to get kind of less sleep and less quality sleep. Do we and, know why? Well, we're, we're learning more about it. We think there are kind of certainly environmental factors that drive differences in sleep, mm-hmm. right? So if we take kind of racial differences, um, you know, s- sleep is not, uh, it, sleep is socially patterned. And so there are, you know, where you live, work and play matters for how you sleep, right? So if you live in an area that has kind of light pollution or noise pollution or more crime, or, um, you know, less sanitation, that, or, or, you know, requires you to live in a more crowded area, like more people per room, all of those things contribute to our ability to sleep well, our opportunity to sleep well. Um, and, you know, I've really kind of approached this as like a, a you know, a social justice issue, that it, it, everyone deserves the right to have adequate rest, and currently it's just not distributed evenly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think most of us have assumptions about sleep issues. And I will admit that when I read your book, I thought I knew a lot about sleep. And some of the things that I believed turned out to be true, according to your book, some partially true and some were dead wrong. So I'm going to I'd like to try something. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm going to make uh, a couple of statements about sleep. And just to give the audience a chance to interact a little bit, at least uh, in their minds, um, we'll take a moment. 
after I say each one, and they can think about whether they think it's true or not, and then we'll get your expert opinion. All okay? right. So here's a couple of ones. And by the way, some of these are, well, I, I, won't, I won't say <laughs> Some of these are easier than others, but anyway, let the first one. It's easier to fall asleep if the room is dark. Why don't you think about that? Is that true? True. True. That is one of the key pieces of sleep hygiene. Mm-hmm. Darkness makes it easier to sleep. All right. So I, I knew that. I knew that. Got I got it. that one right. Okay. Nice. The best temperature for sleeping is room temperature. How about that? I hope that's true because then I don't have to adjust my thermostat every night when I go to bed. Is it true? Is the best temperature for sleeping room temperature? So that's, that's a tricky one because it depends on what temperature the room is. All right. Right? <laughs> and so, it, you know, it turns out that um, our, our core body temperature has to drop as part of sleeping. And it turns out that we sleep better as a species if we're kind of in this range of between 60 to 68, 67 degree Fahrenheit. We don't want it too hot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and for some people that's a little cool. And so that's where it's important to kind of have layers, not, you know, like make sure that you're able to get that, um, within that range. It seems, mm-hmm. you know, the, the data suggests that that's, that's the best for in general. Okay. So if you think room temperature is 68 degrees, maybe a little bit less than that. Yeah. 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 Okay. You're more likely to fall asleep if your room is free of clutter and distractions. Hmm. Eyes closed. Does that matter? What do you think? Uh, yes, yes. It, 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 a cluttered room uh, can be challenging in part because, you know, you want your, the bed to be kind of like a shrine to sleep, right? You want to set it up so that when your body gets into it, it knows what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people like have, you know, and this is certainly true over the pandemic when people, you know, before remote working was, you know, figured out, you know, people were using their bed as their workstation <laughs> as their, you know, TV watching place, as kind of like, you know, where they throw things. And, and it just, it makes it kind of less, uh, less special for sleep, right? And so the more that it can be decluttered, the more it can be just, it serves a function of facilitating sleep, the better off people are. Mm-hmm. So it's not really a physical thing, because why should my body care if my computer is four feet away from me or not with my eyes closed if I'm in bed? But psychologically, I may think it's not quite a, a sleep environment. So uh, that's, a, that's a great question or a great, a great point. Um, you know, it turns out that there are a lot of environmental things that, that are triggers to tell us what, to, what our body's supposed to do, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, I always use the example of like when I used to come home uh, from the clinic, I would touch the doorknob of my apartment mm-hmm. and I would immediately get hungry, right? And that was because I would eat something every time I would get home. And so then my body knew what was supposed to happen. Even if I had just eaten, it would, it would kind of be like, I need to start making insulin. Mm-hmm. Um, the same is true for the bedroom and the bed. The bed is this environmental trigger that tells your body what to do. And it, if, it's, if you're using the bed for other things, it gets confused, mm-hmm. right? Like it becomes less of a powerful thing that, that allows us to kind of let go. Like sleep is about letting go. Yeah. And you know, we need things in our environment to help us know when to do that. Interesting. We'll talk more about that. But first, here's another one. Some people are night owls and simply need to go to sleep and get up later than others. True or not true? Well, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, there are, you know, s- there is circadian variation, meaning that, you know, our biological rhythms are, uh, you know, often genetically driven. And some people are night owls, meaning that they 
they prefer, their body prefers to go to bed later and sleep in later. Um, you know, there are also morning larks where people want to go to bed earlier and get up earlier. Uh, most of us are kind of in the middle, like, you know, we have a preference, but kind of on the extreme end, it can be really challenging, as you might imagine, because the world isn't set up that way, Yeah, right? Yeah, and so, and if you're a night owl married to a morning lark, you really have some challenges, but I know you've you have some of those, right? You know, I mean, Plenty. yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I was just talking to someone today about about uh, about their sleep problems, and and uh, they were remarking, you know, there's it, it for whatever reason, you, often the case that someone that has really severe insomnia mm-hmm. is like married to someone who like sleeps like a rock, mm-hmm. and so they like are constantly seeing that in their face, and and I always say that you know, like luckily we we typically kind of you know choose a mate based on other characteristics than just their sleep preference, yeah, right? Probably. And it changes over time, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's just something part of the aging process. Yeah. All right. Here's one I think we'll all find interesting. You can't skimp on sleep all week and then catch up over the weekend. Sleep debt, catching up, a lot of people do that. Does that, does that work? You know, it, it's definitely something that people do a lot of, right? And I think subjectively, mm-hmm. it can often feel like people can make up some of that sleep. Um, I think the data around, um, you know, so, so the, the tendency for someone to kind of have this sleep debt and then try to shift it uh, and make it up is often called social jet lag. It's something that, like, we often kind of, like, change our rhythms and, and we try to make up this time. And we're learning more about the, the cost of those things that... You know, that, that tendency to do that seems to actually put people at risk for a lot of these age-related conditions that I mentioned around short sleep duration. Some of it's about short sleep duration, right? Mm-hmm. Like they go, you go most of the week getting less than you need, and your body can't make up all that, right? Like we deprive someone of sleep in the laboratory, say for 24 hours, so they lose eight hours of sleep. When we let them sleep, it's not like they sleep 16 hours, mm-hmm. right? Your body can compensate, which is really important, right? We're kind of built for this as humans. Like ask any parent, you can do this kind of thing if you have little kids, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's not a one-to-one thing, yeah. right? And I mean, there are things in place within our body to help kind of compensate for that lost sleep, but the, the data is supporting this idea that like they're, they're, it seems to kind of wear away at, at some of the biology. Okay, so you can partially compensate, but not, not that much. At least not chronically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, here's one about you and your practice. The most frequent recommendation, you, of course, people come to your clinic because they're having trouble sleeping. Yep. So the most frequent recommendation you make to people who come to your sleep clinic is to go to bed at the same time each night. I wonder if the audience thinks that's the most frequent recommendation mm. you make. Is it? False. 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 That is False. not. That is not my most common recommendation. In fact, what can I? Yeah, can I say the most common. So the most common thing that I, if anybody needs to kind of work on their sleep, and again, this is if you know people come to me because they're they're having sleep problems, yeah. right? So, but is to actually maintain a stable wake time every day. And the reason for that, and again, this is a lot to do with insomnia and how mm-hmm. insomnia you know lives within the brain and the mind, um, is that. We can't, we don't get to choose when we fall asleep, mm-hmm. right? But we do have control over what time we wake up. Like, I always try to make the case that, you know, sleep isn't something that we make happen. Sleep is something that comes to us, mm-hmm. kind of like washes over us. 
And so if you maintain a stable wake time, mm-hmm. right, um, you, we use the same amount of energy throughout the day typically. And so then you'll tend to get sleepy around the same time each night. But if we kind of set a known time that you need to be asleep, that actually can be distressing, right? Like you're kind of on the clock, like ticking, tick, tick, tick. Like, oh my gosh, why am I not asleep? I need to be asleep in five minutes. You know, the doctor told me that I need to be asleep at this time. And that actually just feeds that anxiety. And that anxiety is what gets in the way of kind of restful, restorative sleep, kind of that letting go that I mentioned before. Yeah, I was surprised just to read in your book, you mentioned that um, probably the most common thing you see with people who have trouble sleeping is anxiety about sleeping, which is sort of a vicious cycle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, everybody has bad nights of sleep, but when you start to doubt whether you're able to sleep, mm-hmm. you know, it turns, I always think, think of it as, you know, people with insomnia, they're all often on defense. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, kind of always trying to figure out what to do because sleep has become so in- unpredictable. And so you're really trying to like put yourself in the right place at the right time just because maybe sleep will happen and I don't want to miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's, and that, that thinking and that shift in thinking around kind of, you know, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. And if I don't sleep, X, Y, and Z is going to happen mm-hmm. really drives kind of their daytime experience. They spend a lot of effort kind of thinking about that next night and like what they should do. Like I have met lots of people that will cancel social engagements because they don't want to be away from their bedroom just in case they feel that sleepiness cue and they want to be in bed. And right, like that's no way to live. Like that's really hard. And so, you know, when our, in our treatment, in our clinic, we, we really try to kind of give people more confidence in their sleep by kind of these behavioral things as a way of really shifting their cognitions around sleep so that it's something that they don't think about anymore, that it's something that just happens, which is for people who don't have sleep problems, they often aren't thinking about sleep. It's just, just happens. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Next statement. I promise these wouldn't all be quite straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> if you feel drowsy in the afternoon, you should... Stick your head in the freezer. I knew, I knew it. I knew it. Stick your head in the freezer. What do you think about that one? Well, People do that? so <laughs> the, yeah, this is, a, you know, this one takes a little bit explaining. Uh, so, you know, in the book, uh, I use that as an example of, of, a, of an exposure that we know from the science can perk people up, right? So there's, there's a, a term called hermetic stress, which is kind of like a good stress that, you know, kind of builds resilience within the body. Think about like a polar plunge, right? Like people do that all the time and it kind of invigorates them. And, you know, in trying to kind of think of something as an alternative to another cup of coffee, right? And we'll probably talk about caffeine a little yep. bit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and so, you know, sticking your head in a freezer as a potential exposure, a cold exposure, might be a novel thing to do to try to get through those kind of midday doldrums. However, you can also go outside and exercise, get a brisk, you know, get your heart pumping. What we're really trying to do is kind of amp up that sympathetic nervous system so that we have kind of the alerting signals on board to kind of get through kind of the remainder of the day and, until it's time to kind of wind down at night. So maybe stick your head in the freezer could, could do that. Maybe, yeah. maybe. Okay. Caffeine, let's talk about caffeine. Having caffeine after lunchtime can affect our sleep. Hmm, what do we think? Well, I I would say maybe. It depends on what time we're talking about. Um, You know, so it turns out that caffeine uh, has a half-life, meaning that how long long it takes for half of it to be gone from your system Mm -hmm. of about six hours, 
Okay. So that means that if you have a double espresso Mm -hmm. at 4 p.m., at 10 p.m., you still have a single espresso in your system, Mm -hmm. right? And so no surprise for many people that can be disruptive to their sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, it's really about kind of ensuring that you're not kind of adding too many things to your system that will be alerting um, to, to impact your sleep. Caffeine is probably the, the biggest culprit, uh, though there are, of course, other substances that, that can muck around with our sleep. Um, and so, you know, we say kind of not after lunch in general, just to keep people safe uh, from doing that. But of course, like if you don't go to bed till three in the morning, maybe, maybe a little bit after lunch is fine. Mm, you know, doesn't matter too much. Yeah. There. Well, speaking of substances, let's talk about alcohol. So regardless of its other health impacts, yeah. Yeah, yeah. drinking alcohol can help us sleep better. Mm. Well, people may, may, might have had some experience with this. <laughs> what about alcohol and sleep? Yeah, alcohol is, is uh, you know, a tried and true kind of soporific. You know, people have a nightcap and it absolutely helps people fall asleep. Um, so it is good to sleep. Well, well. It's complicated because it actually really affects the brain. It can change your sleep architecture. Um, it does something called, it suppresses what's called rapid eye movement sleep. Um, so as a consequence, you get kind of a big dose of deep sleep. Uh, and then at the, you know, a couple hours later, you have this rapid eye movement rebound, and it leads to kind of more fragmented sleep across the night, right? So it changes the quality of our sleep. In addition to that, alcohol, you know, hits on... Uh, our GABA receptors in our brain, which are, you know, help facilitate relaxation. That helps give us the effect of alcohol. Um, but alcohol doesn't stay in your system forever. And so as you go throughout the night, it, it wanes off and your brain notices, right? It notices it doesn't have this chemical creating this relaxation anymore. And as a consequence, you have kind of more fragmented sleep, less, less uh, res- restoration. So easier to get to sleep, but harder to stay asleep. Absolutely. Alcohol. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I found that. By the way, I've found that more as I age. Is that typical? Yeah, yeah, we definitely hear that more as people age. I mean, you know, it turns out, you know, as we age, um, you know, a lot of things get more challenging. Yeah. And we can't do all the things that, that we used to. And we become more sensitive to certain things. And I think uh, alcohol turns out to be one of those. One yeah. Of yeah. 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 You know, we had, you mentioned earlier that uh, you're supposed to get at least seven hours of sleep a night. We have a question from the audience. Yep. It's kind of the reverse. Is it bad to get more than eight or nine hours of sleep a night? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and so uh, and it's it's a little bit complicated. So you know, one we don't have a great understanding of sleep need mm-hmm. at this point. We kind of have kind of population level information, usually based on kind of one question that was asked to you know thousands and thousands of people, and then we kind of weight it to make it representative of, of the population. But it, you know, as this viewer asks, you know, it turns out that long sleep duration is also associated with increased risk for a lot of these negative health outcomes that I mentioned with respect to, you know, short sleep duration. And usually it's around, you know, 10 or more hours of sleep. It depends on the study. Um, And the question is kind of why that is. Like, why would long sleep duration be associated with all these bad things? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a couple different potential explanations which are still kind of being figured out. So, you know, one could be that, uh, what long sleep duration is really an indicator for is some kind of early sign of disease, mm-hmm. right? So if you ever get a cold like, you know, or, or an infection, oftentimes people sleep a lot more, right? Their sleep isn't kind of doesn't feel great 
oftentimes, but they sleep more than they usually do. And so maybe what we're really seeing is like the sleep, long sleep duration is just an, uh, a proxy for yeah. something that's going on in the body. The other one that uh, indiv- uh, groups have been interested in is, you know, hypersomnia is also um, seen in a subtype of depression, mm-hmm. right? And depression is associated with a whole bunch of negative health outcomes. So maybe what is going on is that, uh, you know, some of these individuals ex- are experiencing this depression. And it's really just uh, kind of on the pathway uh, for the link between depression and illness. Mm-hmm. So, okay. I want to do more. Um, yeah. Drinking warm milk before bedtime can help us fall asleep. Maybe with some cookies too. You never know. What about uh, warm milk or some other food just before bedtime? Yeah, this is one that I that I hear a lot. Um, we. Don't have great data on this topic, but lots of people swear by it. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear warm milk, I hear cheese, I hear bread. Um, and, you know, I think it oftentimes, it, you know, there may be some data to support that link. Mm-hmm. I also think that oftentimes sleep is really governed by a lot of rituals, mm-hmm. right? And those rituals themselves actually kind of cue the body to be able to sleep. Um, you know, I, I, I wish... We had the kind of randomized control trials to know about uh, warm milk versus some kind of warm water, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, certainly for, for many people, it seems kind of bundled in with their experience of sleep and thus kind of somehow facilitates that experience. Yes, yeah, so whatever, whatever ritual you have that makes you think sleep, that's, that's good. And it sounds like a lot of people with sleep problems don't have, have rituals that perhaps get in the way of them sleeping. That's absolutely right. I mean, oftentimes when people have insomnia, it's due to kind of changes in their behavior that in the moment seem like they make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And they do. But they actually, in the long term, kind of undermine how sleep works. Mm -hmm. So like a good example would be when people have a bad night of sleep, they'll try to sleep in and and kind of make up all that time, right? Mm -hmm. But that can really throw in motion kind of challenges for the following night, right? Mm-hmm. And so if someone already has insomnia, they sleep in extra long, or maybe they nap later because they don't feel good, and then they find that they can't fall asleep. They start worrying about the fact that they've lost control of their sleep, and it just kind of, you know, kind of can feed forward. And so, uh, you know, that those routines can really um, kind of, you know, throw sleep off track. Yeah, yeah. All right, one more, one more, uh, one more statement for us to think about. Having even a moderately stressful day can cause sleep problems. The stress leads to sleep problems. That's, a, that's another uh, great question. And, and I, I will say that stress plays a critical role in most individuals' insomnia. Like something happens in their life, and, but then it's these changes in behavior that often perpetuate the mm-hmm. insomnia. What's been interesting from our so we do a lot of this work in our laboratory because we're really interested in the links between stress and sleep because I really think about uh, that they're, they're one, they're bidirectionally linked. Mm-hmm. And so we have this opportunity for interventions on both sides of the equation, right? Like we know how to help with people who are stressed and, you know, stress management skills and meditation. We do a lot of mindfulness trials at UCSF. Um, and so we might get kind of an improvement on, in sleep as kind of a spillover. Uh, but in the same way, we also know how to treat sleep, and we might give people the resources to better deal with their stress. And so in doing this work, 
we've been interested in kind of like the push and pull of these things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know that stress contributes to insomnia, but does it really impact sleep in people that don't have insomnia? Mm -hmm. And what we found is that when people have bad nights of sleep, Mm -hmm. they are more sensitive to stressors during the day. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, little things feel like big things to Mm -hmm. them. Um, And that's, that certainly is 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 a true statement that we've we've seen in multiple data sets and in, in different research groups have found. What we've also found is that when people have stress, it often doesn't really affect their sleep so much mm-hmm. unless it's really close to bedtime, mm-hmm. right? And I think part of that has to do with the fact that you know sleep is regulated by lots of things like our environment, our our sleep drive that builds up across the day, our circadian rhythm. And so maybe these little stressors, these kind of daily hassles that we have mm-hmm. don't play as big a role. Now, if you have a really big thing happen to you, like then you'll probably be thinking about it and it'll drive kind of difficulties with sleep. Mm-hmm. Or if you say get in an argument right before bedtime, mm-hmm. like that'll probably impact your sleep. But like I I kind of think of it as good news that, you know, because we we can't get rid of all the stress in our day. Mm-hmm. And the data suggests from our group and, and others around the country that the, the relationship is much stronger from the sleep-to-stress side than it is from the stress-to-sleep side in general, like in, in, you know, in, in regular day-to-day people. Interesting. Yeah. So poor sleep causes more stress for us to be more responsive to stress. Yes, yes, yes. We're absolutely around. more sensitive to it. Interesting. Um, so forgetting about the milk and cookies, how, does diet affect sleep or does sleep affect diet or, or both? Yeah, so I mean, I think we're, we're we have a less of an understanding about how diet affects sleep. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, you know, we're we're starting to learn more about, you know, whether it's you know complex carbs or simple carbs that seem to kind of improve sleep. Um, you know, and those those trials are being done. We certainly have a really good understanding about what sleep loss does to our choices around nutrition. Right. So all of us have probably been in the situation where we had a bad night of sleep and we had to choose between the salad and the pizza. Mm-hmm. And we you know, almost always choose the pizza. Right. And part of it has to do with the impact of sleep loss, what it has on our kind of a reward system in our brain. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we experience sleep loss, kind of our reward system, our, you know, kind of drive towards some of these things kind of increases Mm -hmm. and our ability to regulate kind of decreases. And so we're kind of like the gas is on and the brake isn't working. And that ultimately leads to, uh, you know, challenges in, in, in food preferences, Mm -hmm. um, and, and actual behavior too. And it's, you know, it's certainly kind of a really interesting area of neuroscience to, to think about how sleep kind of really helps govern some of these things that are so critical to, health and well-being, right? I mean, I, I, as, as the sleep field has progressed over time, you know, it's, it's clear that sleep is now being considered as a pillar around, alongside exercise and nutrition. Um, and, and it was something that wasn't the case, you know, even a decade ago. Yeah, yeah. But seeing the links is interesting. I recall something in, in your book about a study with the supermarkets where people who had less sleep uh, uh, often bought food that wasn't as good for them. Yeah. Oh man, that's it's definitely one of my most my favorite studies I ever read. I mean, oh. just just kind of the so it was a, it was a study where they deprived people of sleep or they didn't, and then they uh, the the research group had built a grocery store 
and given them like X amount of money and they could kind of walk around and the caloric density of the food that was bought for, by the people that were sleep deprived was, was so much higher. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was, you know, they, we had seen this, these data around preferences and like I would do this or that, but to actually see the behavior was, was really interesting and really compelling. Yeah. Wow. We have a number of questions, uh, mostly about substances and drugs that, that people use for sleep. I'm sure you get yeah. this all the time. So let's start with melatonin. There's questions about, uh, is melatonin good to use? Can you give your kids melatonin? If you feel like you're dependent on melatonin, what should you do? Yeah, melatonin is, is certainly one of the most common uh, sleep aids that people use, and, and it seems to be on the rise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the, the data, the randomized clinical trial data, which we kind of use as our kind of highest threshold for evidence um, in treating insomnia is fairly weak. Um, you know, I certainly meet lots of people that say they take it. Um, but, you know, if you look at the, the data, it doesn't seem to create much more benefit, or if at all, over the placebo condition, mm-hmm. right? Um, in, except in kids. Mm-hmm. So it actually does seem to be pretty effective in kids. I'm not a pediatric sleep mm-hmm. uh, specialist, but, uh, you know, certainly my pediatric sleep colleagues do talk about melatonin as, as kind of being effective and safe and can be used in, in those types of conditions. And, and why that is for kids but not adults uh, is not clear, but, uh, you know, is used more, more regularly there. Uh, the question about um, dependency, it, you know, is chronic use mm-hmm. of it. Um, you know, so one of the things that people often worry about is chronic use of melatonin you know, we make melatonin in our brain. Is this going to kind of burn out our pineal gland, which is where melatonin is released from? And the data currently does not support that happening. Mm-hmm. But part of it is we don't have kind of long-term chronic use data for, you know, a bunch of people mm-hmm. to know what, it, what happens if you take melatonin over a long period of time. All that being said, you know, I, when I think about dependency on anything related to sleep, um, the question is like, what happens if you don't have it, mm-hmm. right? So I... I, I I had this patient who had a weighted blanket, right? And there's recent recent paper that just came out that suggests that weighted blankets actually might be helpful for sleep. It's not clear yeah. why, but but it's but but the but uh, she would take it everywhere she went, right? And you know, we knew it was a problem when she would go to the airport with her friends, and someone they like rotated who had to pay the extra charge to like you know put it on the plane, right? Yeah. And so I was like, gosh, well maybe that's an issue if if you know, you're spending an extra 40 bucks to move a weighted blanket to wherever you're going, right? And, and part of it was that, you know, she would have terrible insomnia if she couldn't use it. And I think the same is true for melatonin, for um, kind of any type of thing that we try to use as a sleep aid, um, because, you know, I don't think that's something that we necessarily need. It can be, it can be helpful and it can be challenging to stop, but, you know, sleep is something that hopefully we can figure out a way to do it naturally. Um, and I, and I do have opinions about like, you know, are, are sleep aids ever a good idea? And there's certainly instances in which they are, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they, there's been kind of, you know, revolutions around kind of these types of classes of drugs that people use, um, that can really be helpful. Um, but it's, it's really around the chronic use of them that is challenging. And in any of those cases, a lot of these drugs aren't necessarily like physiologically addicting, mm-hmm. but psychologically they become dependent on it like almost instantaneously. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to break, right? And so it's better to not get into that position. So if you're in that position, though, I know that most of the, th- the things you talk about in your book are, are non, non-medical ways, non-medicine, medicinal ways of, of getting through things. So you would recommend then perhaps um, getting, using some of those techniques and, and uh, weaning off 
the uh, other things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I will say that in our, in our clinic, 90% of people are already taking something, yeah. right? Like what we do is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It's, you know, it's understood to be the first line treatment for treating people with insomnia, but it rarely is the first thing, right? Mm-hmm. They are often, uh, you know, they meet with their primary care physician. There's very few behavioral sleep medicine folks and there's fewer, you know, just as few clinics. And so, you know, they understandably are trying to get their patients help. Yeah. But um, what ends up happening is, you know, those medications often kind of mask the problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's growing data around the potential harm of chronic use of some of these conditions to our brain health, right? right? And so more and more people are coming in to try and get off of them. And so we have to, you know, what we do is we kind of run through, uh, you know, a protocol. A lot of it is tried to, I tried to distill in this book, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not the same as actually going to a clinic. So I want to be clear there that like, you know, this is not, the, the book is the same principles, but it's not the same as working hand in hand with a clinician, uh, to kind of try to personalize it. But, uh, you know, when we do this in the clinic, then we, uh, you know, we improve people's sleep, get it more regulated, and then we kind of slowly taper them off, but in a, in a fashion that's actually pretty slow because it's, we're trying to reduce any possibility that anxiety of coming off the medication is going to get in the way, yeah, right? Yeah. And so it's really about stepping down on a dose when someone feels comfortable to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had a specific question about Ambien and whether that's bad for the brain. Yeah, so, you know, these, these drugs, um, these Z drugs, so Ambien's, you know, uh, generic name is Zolpidem. Uh, and, you know, there is thought that chronic use of these might, you know, contribute to premature cognitive aging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's very challenging to know that causal link. In the in the data that's available, um, and it's unclear about chronicity and duration. Uh, you know, so how commonly you use it, and then over what period of time um, will contribute to this. But you know, every year it seems like we're getting closer and closer to you know coming to the conclusion that mm-hmm. it's it's probably not good for your brain. Um, you know, but I mean it it's it's also uh, not you know, it's not totally clear at this point either. Right. So, you know, I say it kind of cautiously, yeah, but yeah, the, you know, the data right. is accruing that, you know, and I, I certainly am a proponent of trying to figure out alternatives mm-hmm. to using those types of medications. Though, again, these medications are, are typically, you know, really effective, like in acute settings, right? Yeah. Like when people travel or whatever, like you use it one night, they can really help. Though, you know, certainly you have, there's, a, there's a side effect risk profile, right? Like if you're an older adult and at risk for falling, like, you know, it can be dangerous or, you know, people have kind of negative side effects to it, which they should uh, consult with their doctor about. You, you, you encourage caution, please. In the use of that Absolutely. For all there, too. Um, uh, I saw a cartoon recently. It was two toddlers in diapers, and one was saying to the other one, nap, I'll nap when I'm 30. <laughs> people have naps but how about naps can daytime naps make up for poor sleep at night yeah yeah naps are um you know they they are not on their own bad things mm-hmm. right i mean i think for people that have insomnia mm-hmm. um and have really troubles falling asleep at night it's probably not a good idea to nap during the day 
Um, one of the things that the way that I kind of think about the sleep drive that people have is like a balloon, mm-hmm. right? So when you wake up in the morning, the balloon is flat and then you go throughout your day and it kind of builds up with sleep, sleepiness, mm-hmm. right? Until it gets to kind of an optimal amount and then you go to sleep and it drains out and you start the day again. When you nap, you're kind of like letting some of that sleepiness out, right? Mm-hmm. So the expectation shouldn't be that you should be able to sleep just as easily as you would had you not napped. Yeah. Um, but we know that, you know, a nap can kind of make people feel more alert at the end of it. They can be more, you know, feel, feel more rested. They, it seems to help with learning and, you know, potentially cognition, things like that. So, I mean, because sleep does these things for us, I think, you know, the caution is, you know, if you're trying to improve your sleep at night, maybe nap might not be the right thing to do. And you certainly don't want to nap long, right? Because mm-hmm. what happens is if you kind of sleep, if you nap kind of maybe more than 30 minutes, you, have, you run the risk of kind of dropping into deep sleep, mm-hmm. right? And what happens is when you wake up, you experience what's called sleep inertia, mm-hmm. which is that feeling when you feel worse after a nap than you did before. Yeah. That's because you're, you're like trying to rip your body out of, like you're out of that, that kind of deep sleep, and, mm-hmm. and then you're kind of, you know, kind of useless for, for a couple hours after that, I think. Okay, okay. Well, I know you talk a lot in the book about kind of getting set up for sleep. We've talked about cues and so forth. We have a question from the audience that says, how can I best get my brain to calm down before sleep without using medicine? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, a busy brain, you know, this idea of being kind of wired, not tired, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, uh, you know, people have this like really active brain. It's really hard to calm down. I think, you know, there are a couple of things that can be done. I mean, I think one is, uh, is around prevention, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, being intentional about having this transition to bedtime, mm-hmm. right? Kind of carving out this uh, time where you kind of note that, the, you know, the, the day is over, the work is done, and you kind of do something for yourself to kind of allow yourself to wind down. And so what is that that helps you wind down? I mean, it, you know, we, we get a lot of success with, um, you know, progressive muscle relaxation or meditation. There's lots of meditation apps out there that can kind of help you amp up your parasympathetic nervous system and allow you to get relaxed. But other people kind of really benefit from just like doing relaxing things like reading or kind of watching television that you've seen before that's just kind of relaxing and pleasant. Um, But then also there are kind of things that you can do to try to reduce the amount of stress that you're feeling, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You know, one thing that we talk about in the, that I talk about in the book is, um, you know, worrying early, Mm -hmm. right? So actually kind of getting out in front of it and scheduling time that uh, where you can actually do some of that worrying, right? You actually kind of carve out, you know, 15, 20 minutes of kind of writing down the things that worry you or just kind of dictating them or thinking about them. It tends to, do, to work better if you, you really write them out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and kind of having your body and your mind have this like special time just for worrying so that when it gets to bedtime, mm-hmm. you know, those things aren't cropping up, especially in the middle of the night. And, and if they do, you can tell yourself, like, look, I've already done this today, mm-hmm. and I have it scheduled for tomorrow. Because honestly, I think all of us can agree that, you know, at, at the end of the night, or I mean, at the end of the day when we're getting into bed, or in the middle of the night when these things happen, we're just not at our best to, like, solve the world's problems. Or, and so, you know, kind of making time for that during the day is a much better solution. So kind of, you know, having the transition time, kind of doing relaxation activities um, that are kind of personal for you, Right, like can't be necessarily prescriptive about this, but the the sentiment is something that is relaxing, facilitates kind of a calmness, things that you enjoy that are pleasant, um, but also might 
kind of help distract you a little bit from other things that might be kind of buzzing around up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of maybe worrying early might put you in this place to, to kind of get a good night rest. Okay, good. And I heard in there too about TV. Some people are hard and fast with a rule saying, shouldn't watch TV right before bed. Sounds like you're mixed about that, depending if whether the TV is relaxing for you or not. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this is, this has been a, a, a really interesting development and a large, a lot of it has been around blue light exposure, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of times people say, stay away from screens, including TV screens, uh, because of blue light exposure, which we know can act on our brains and our, uh, and kind of impact the melatonin system, right? Mm-hmm. Can shut it down. And, you know, that's not good because melatonin is really important to help us get sleepy and kind of sets the table for sleep. Um, but, uh, you know, luckily we have lots of filters that we can put on these devices because I make the argument that it's really about the content that people are engaging in. I mean, I think a great example is social media, right? Like social media is developed and the internet in general is developed to kind of like keep you coming back, mm-hmm. right? It's engaging that reward system, that reward system that I talked about that, you know, keeps your brain kind of moving and, and keeping, you know, wanting more, yeah. right? And that is really incompatible with sleeping, yeah. right? And so what I suggest is, okay, you know, like, let's not do the social media stuff. Let's not do any work email. Let's not, let's let, but you can watch TV, but I'm, but I'm saying don't start a Netflix series that you want to binge watch that you can't wait to get into because that's not going to, that's also engaging for your brain. And so, you know, what I always suggest is like, or, and, and patients have, have had success with this is like, watch a show that you've seen before. So like an example for me is like, I love the office. I don't know why, like, I don't know what it's about, but like I could watch it forever because I know what's going to happen. Like I just find it calming. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing that we're really trying to bottle that experience, that feeling that can then facilitate sleep that you don't need to keep, keep engaged with it. And so, you know, that's, that's my stance on it. Certainly other sleep clinicians might have a a bigger hard line on it, Mm -hmm. but I, I think, you know, I've had this experience where I've had patients have heard that before. And then when they are in the middle of the night, not able to sleep, they're just, sitting in a dark room, getting more and more distressed because there's nothing they're allowed to do, mm-hmm. right? And that, that actually kind of works against us. Yeah. Well, let's talk about when you're sitting in, in, in that room. Um, yeah. We have an audience question that says, if, if you try to sleep for half an hour and you can't, what's the best thing to do? And I'll combine that with a second question, which is, what if you wake up in the middle of the night and can't fall back asleep? What should you do? Yes. Super common. Um, and, and so, you know, one thing that we always suggest in our clinic and, and is also in, the, in this book is, um, you know, if you try to go to bed, so first of all, if you're going to sleep, don't get in bed until you're sleepy, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's the first thing um, because we only want the bed for sleep, mm-hmm. okay? But if you get in bed and you give yourself a, a good go of it and it just doesn't work, you know, and you're starting to kind of get a little bit distressed that you're not mm-hmm. sleeping, you want to get out of bed. And this is hard. This is a hard thing to get people to do, right? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, get out of bed, um, and, and sit somewhere quiet, you know, do these relaxation things until you begin to feel those sleepiness cues again, and then you want to get back in bed. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that, particularly in people that have kind of, this happens chronically, um, you know, I hear all the time that they'll say, you know, I was feeling really sleepy, and then I got in bed, and my brain woke up, mm-hmm. right? And that's like such a classic kind of way to describe insomnia. It's, and what that is, is it's, called a conditioned arousal. Mm-hmm. And it's, in fact, the, the, the case that 
the bed now itself is kind of, it used to be this trigger to kind of bring on sleepiness. Now you spent so much time in bed with your mind worrying and like, you know, ruminating about things that it's now confused. And now it has become a place of arousal. And so we really need to make sure that we can break that relationship. Uh, You know, so take that angstiness out of the bed, do something quiet, and then kind of repair it with the bed so that it again begins to facilitate this sleepiness. And so the things that you can do outside of the bed when you're not, a, you're not able to sleep are the same things that I mentioned earlier. Like it can be, you know, reading, listening to music, uh, you know, listening to your favorite kind of, you know, calming meditation or watching television or something until you begin to feel sleepy again. And then you want to get back and try again. And obviously it's, it's challenging, right? Like the, no one, you know, especially as, the, as it's getting colder at night, like people don't want to get out of bed. Um, but it is critical there are, of course, adaptations that you can make, like if people have chronic pain. Um, really what you want to do is kind of teach the body that whatever you're doing is not the same as sleeping. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I have people just like sit all the way up in bed. And, or if you don't have a partner, like just moving to the other side of the bed. It gives your body kind of this like, you know, kind of can, can be a hack to help it think, oh, well, this isn't sleeping. And then I wait and get sleepy. And then you get back in your position that you were in. Because, uh, you know, it, the, this conditioned arousal is really, you know, such a big part of the foundation of what drives insomnia. So this conditioning is a this Pavlovian sort exactly, of thing. Exactly, exactly. It's the same. feel like you're going to sleep or you're at a place where you're not sleeping. And it's right. Managing that sounds like right. that's really important. Um, what about exercise? Does, ex- does the amount of exercise or when you get exercise, the type, does that affect sleep? Yeah, yeah, exercise. I mean, obviously exercise is great for lots of things. I mean, this is what we hear constantly in it, and, and sleep is no different. Um, and, but it, but it, the timing does matter. And it seems to matter for some people and not for others. And I, you know, that, that's a little bit less clear about why that is. But typically, we uh, suggest that people try not to exercise too close to bedtime. And, and too close is, you know, you know, maybe two hours before, maybe three hours before, depending on the type of exercise that you're doing. Um, you know, what we worry about is kind of like high intensity exercise yeah. because of the kind of the, what it does to your body, right? Like high intensity exercise kind of really amps up your nervous system. And sometimes it, for some people, it's really hard to come down from that. Mm-hmm. And so as a consequence, they, you know, just it's harder to get to sleep and it's, you know, it might lead to their sleeping of a less of a quality than it was otherwise. But I mean, it's also true that, you know, when people do get exercise, uh, you know, that's one of the few things that we know can enhance deep sleep, mm-hmm. right? So, so when people do high-intensity exercise, maybe it's something about kind of using that amount of energy or maybe it's the amount of recovery that someone needs that is driving this. But, you know, data suggests that that actually can create more deep sleep. And there's not that many things that we can do to do that. I mean, kind of the other one that is uh, shown to be the most effective is depriving people of sleep. So if you mm-hmm. deprive someone of sleep, they almost immediately fall into deep sleep when they get a the chance to sleep. So, you know, exercise might be the, the better option. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised to read that in your sleep, in your, in your clinic, one of the things you do, people can't sleep, is sometimes get it, have them get even less sleep. But that <laughs> seems to be an effective way to reset things. Well, well, I mean, I, I guess I would amend it in that way. It's, yeah. it's actually, uh, it changes their sleep opportunity, right? So, um, you know, going back to that balloon mm-hmm. analogy, right? Uh, it turns out if you keep people out of bed longer, um, they, their balloon will get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Like it'll keep growing until you have to sleep. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's, that's effective, it, or you know, why this is so effective is, um, you know, it's, even if you're anxious about your sleep, 
like the need is so big mm-hmm. that you'll go to sleep and people will kind of be like, oh, wow, like I was able to sleep. Yeah. And, and there's something about, um, about this, and it's, it's not just um, you know, allowing people to fall asleep. What happens as a consequence is an individual's sleep becomes more consolidated. Mm-hmm. Right? We get a big bolus of sleep. And it turns out that when people get a big chunk of sleep at once, um, it feels better subjectively mm-hmm. than that same amount of sleep broken up mm-hmm. or even a little bit more. And if it's broken up, it's something about like the continuity of it. And so by kind of restricting the time, we, we typically make people's bedtimes later. Yep. And this is based on their own personalized data, right? We, we have people fill out sleep diaries and we understand like how long it takes them to fall asleep and how much they're awake during the night. And that helps us understand how much they're really sleeping. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, take that average and maybe add a half hour to it, and then that's their, that's their opportunity for sleep. And if they do that over time, their sleep will become more and more consolidated, and they'll just subjectively feel better and become more confident that they don't have to think about it anymore. It's, it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful tool. Wow. Wow. That's some unusual tools I wouldn't have expected. I mean, you specialize in using cognitive behavioral therapy for sleep, and yep. I've you know, heard a lot about CBT, but usually I think about it for say, desensitizing. So you're afraid of heights or snakes or something like that. You CBT, DBT or other fears. Yeah. How does it work for sleep? Yeah. I mean, I think the, you know, so the CBT for insomnia. So I, we've talked a lot about the B, right? Yeah. The behaviors, right? Yeah. And there's all these behavioral things that we do around sleep scheduling and, you know, you know, sleep hygiene things, but the cognitive piece is also really important. And it, it you know, there's more and more evidence that it's the cognitive piece that seems to keep people from having insomnia mm-hmm. after they've been treated, right? Because it really shifts their uh, beliefs about what it means to not have a good night's sleep. And so, you know, often we'll do things like kind of thought records, right? We'll have people, and they do this a lot in anxiety and depression, CBT for depression, um, where we, we're trying to understand the, the evidence for and against some of the kind of catastrophic thoughts that people have about their sleep. And so a good example would be, you know, someone feels like, well, if I don't get a good sleep tonight, I'm not going to be able to work effectively tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? Well, a very common one for people to experience. Um, but so we'll, we'll uh, have someone, you know, think about the evidence for and against that kind of thought, that, mm-hmm. that cognition, which, of course, drives distress and might make changes to their sleep. And so, you know, and, and if we kind of collect the evidence, almost always we find that, like, look, like, yeah, like you, 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 if you don't get a great night's sleep, maybe you won't feel your best, right? But also, if you got a great, oftentimes when you've gotten a great night's sleep, you don't feel your best, mm-hmm. right? And, and you have all this evidence that even if you get a bad night's sleep, you still get through your day and no one even notices. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, and it really starts to shift, like chip away at how people think about this. Because oftentimes when people have distressing thoughts about their sleep and when they have insomnia, it's very black and white, mm-hmm. right? It's like, you know, either I get great sleep or I can't sleep at all, right? Mm-hmm. And it's always in between. And, and I think a lot of it is around the education that, like, you know, sleep is variable. All yeah. of us have bad night's sleep, but we're also really resilient. Well, I was surprised to read in your book that most people with insomnia have behaviors they use to try to protect their sleep. Yeah. But that many of those actually are counterproductive and reinforce their insomnia because they're self-defeating. Yeah. Unpack that a bit. Well, give us, give us an example of that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that, that's a good, I mean, you know, as, as I mentioned before, like napping is a good example, right? Like that's like to kind of get back that sleep, but it actually impacts their ability to sleep at night. 
um, you know, changes in their patterns around, um, you know, wake, waking up, like sleeping in to try to kind of make up for sleep that they lost that night mm-hmm. um, also kind of impacts their sleep that coming night. Um, but then another one that is really common and, and definitely undermines sleep is um, they'll go to bed. People with insomnia often go to bed really, really early, mm-hmm. right? Be, and it makes sense. Again, like, as I said before, like, in the moment, this makes total sense. Like, sleep feels really unpredictable. You're chasing it constantly. Like, you want to be in bed mm-hmm. because who knows when it's going to happen? You want to be there. But spending all that extra time in bed, going to bed at, you know, 7 o'clock at night when you're going to get up at 7 in the morning in a human that can only make, say, 8 hours of sleep, that's guaranteeing 4 hours of wakefulness. Like, just, just because you can't make that much sleep. Mm-hmm. But in the moment, it feels like you want to be there, mm-hmm. you know? And, and it's really, you know, getting that schedule and shifting it and, and kind of using this kind of uh, idea that every individual can be their kind of own sleep scientist, uh, that, you know, it's in the data mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, can help people begin to shift and see that sleep isn't, you aren't chasing sleep, mm-hmm. right? Sleep was always there. Uh-huh. It's just, you know, we need, often need to get out of our own way. Well, some people... Uh, there's been a number of questions about uh, THC, the active ingredient in marijuana. Yeah. And some people feel like it's a help. Some feel it's a hindrance. What, what's your opinion on that? Yeah. I mean, I think in the next, you know, I don't know, five years, we'll have more conclusive information about this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been real challenges, as you might imagine, in actually doing the research on this topic, mainly because uh, most of the money or that funds research, at least in the U.S., and and certainly at our group is is funded by the federal government, mm-hmm. and you know these these compounds aren't legal federally, and so they we can't get money to 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 to, to do the do the research. Um, there have been a couple studies that have looked at this in the context of insomnia. Usually, they're uh, combinations of CBD and THC um, in a kind of a special kind of formula. Uh, that is not always clear, but that have found some benefits uh, compared to placebo. But, you know, the challenge is, like, those formulas aren't the ones you can go to the store and get, yeah. right? And so now now what do you do? You have kind of, you know, some kind of third-person evidence that THC might be helpful. And I, I, I am certain that it probably is in some instances and in, mm-hmm. in some forms. Um, but, you know, we don't have the, the right clinical trials data to be kind of sure about that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly there are risks that go along with that. And then, you know, getting back to any sleep aid, the dependency issues that aren't about the chemical itself. It's about the psychological dependency. Right. And so, you know, um, it might be helpful. There's probably lots of things out that we can consume that are helpful. um, But it also puts you, runs the risk of putting you in a situation where um, you become dependent on it. Yeah. Yeah. So again, another one to watch out for. Now, your book's subtitle, I want to get this right, is Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. And one of the things I thought was great about the book is it doesn't only talk about sleep or explain the reasons people have problems sleeping, but it actually has a step-by-step process to follow over the course of one week each day to do something different. Have you tested that? Can people with a sleep problem really get a lot of benefit from one week of doing these things? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's a great question. Um, We... You know, it's definitely based on the principles of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, I do make the case at the end of the book that this isn't the uh, end, it's the beginning. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of these things do take time. And I like to think of 
all of these steps is more like a recipe Mm -hmm. that they all kind of work together. And so you need to keep adding in the ingredients to get the full effect. And then it it needs to bake, Mm -hmm. right, for for a little time. But, you know, certainly, uh, you know, all individually of these steps are helpful for sleep. Um, you know, and they are based on cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Mm-hmm. There was a, a review in, in the Boston Globe where someone did go through them and found them effective. So that was very right. good to hear. And, and I know, you know, anecdotally, all of these things are effective. Uh, but I, I do think it's important that um, they build on each other. And it is about kind of improving your sleep on average. Mm-hmm. And it does take time. And, um, you know, so I would want people to really begin to... Uh, uh, kind of dig in on those things. And I, I mean, you know, the final, the final one of the, the seven days is around going to bed later. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, th- partly that's because there's also a sleep diary in this book. And so you need the information from the, subs- the earlier days to actually figure out what time you should be going to bed. Yeah. But like, you know, the going to bed part, certainly going to bed later, it takes several days for that to begin to kick in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, our clinic... Uh, when we take, bring people through cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, it's usually like over the course of five weeks or something. So, you know, it does take time. Uh, we did set it up as a, a seven-day schedule, but, you know, think of it as seven days and in, in, in a couple going. iterations. Yeah, 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 yeah. overall. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, the, uh, the book has a lot of rationale for how to think about this, uh, but mostly it's, it's really very practical, actionable uh, steps, which is great, and, 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 and instructions. Um, if I'm not following some of your guidelines, but I'm sleeping fine, should I change something? So, I mean, I think that's a, a great point. I mean, I think this book is particularly helpful in people that are having challenges with their sleep. I guess I approached it by like, oh. if you're going to pick up this book and it says like the sleep prescription, you probably either want to kind of improve your sleep in some way or you're mm. curious for someone else. Um, and so, you know, it's it's not necessarily something that you need to change about your sleep. I mean, but, you know, you may gain some nuggets in there that like, oh, I didn't, I didn't think about that. Like maybe I could even enhance my sleep just a little bit more by enacting these, or I know someone who could benefit from this. Um, you know, I, I, I definitely, and, and then, you know, certainly the around, you know, a lot of people who sleep well mm-hmm. are sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's why they sleep well. I mean, I think I, I always use the example of like, you know, go on an airplane at, at, you know, nine in the morning and half the plane is asleep. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's, that's not normal. Like mm-hmm. that's a great indicator of like how sleep deprived the society is. And that, you know, that's certainly that's, that's talked about in the, in this book as well. Yeah. Of course, certainly when you get the, you get, get the airport early. So a lot of people have been sleep deprived it's, just that it's one. True. Day. That's true. That's, Overall, that's fair. Away. That's now, um, I have a lot of friends who use either a Fitbit or an Apple Watch, some of the technology to measure and monitor their sleep. Uh, you recommend uh, a sleep diary if people are really trying to be serious about it. Why not? Are those other ones not that accurate? So, I mean, I, I think that's a, a great question. And, and I, I will say that technology has been an incredible tool. Or, uh, technology has created a, incredible tools that have pushed the interest in sleep mm-hmm. kind of kind of to levels that we, we, we couldn't imagine from our research perspective. I mean, people have kind of have this kind of appetite for knowing about their sleep, and that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they also are consumer products, typically, yeah. um, and uh, maybe aren't always as accurate as they could be. And often, 
create distress when they don't need to um, in individuals. In fact, uh, some years ago now, uh, a term was coined uh, orthosomnia, which is an insomnia that develops because of wearable devices, <laughs> right? Because people will find out, they'll look at their, you know, I wear an aura ring and yeah. it'll say, you know, it could say like, oh, you had no deep sleep last night. And yeah. we're like, oh my gosh, what does that mean for my brain? <laughs> and they'll come to our clinic and show their data and say like, look, like I need to fix this based on these data. And, um, you know, we have to educate about, you know, some of these yeah. things aren't great at this. Devices in general are pretty good yeah. at detecting sleep duration and mm-hmm. how fragmented someone's sleep is. But it's, it's, it gets, and it gets dicier in, when it comes to like the architecture of someone's sleep. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a, an, it's a when, not an if question. Yeah. yeah. And so, but, but in, in, in trying to become your own sleep scientist, I think yeah. there's a real benefit to actually doing the data by hand. Yeah. Um, also because insomnia in, more specifically, is a subjective experience, mm-hmm. right? And, and sometimes there are a lot of awakenings that we have that we have no recollection of. Right. And so right. if you have no recollection yeah. of them, like, what is distressing about that? Yeah, yeah. You know? But we're just about out of time, but I want to ask you one more question. Okay. We have 30 seconds for it. All right. Uh, we've covered so much great information. You've got so many great ideas. What's the single most important thing someone with a sleep problem can do to improve their sleep? And you can't say buy your book, although I recommend that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think... You know, if someone has uh, a significant sleep problem, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that you start with really starting to understand what is driving that, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I always tell people that they should start, you know, st- keeping a stable wake time is like a, a, a quick thing that they can start doing just to help regulate the system. But, you know, sleep problems develop for lots of different reasons. And in some of them can be really serious, if not addressed. So like obstructive sleep apnea is a great mm-hmm. example. And so if someone is really concerned about their sleep, um, you know, there are the things in the book to, to kind of, you know, help lay, lay that out to try to get things back on track, particularly if it's insomnia. But, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's not a substitute for meeting with your physician or a, you know, a behavioral sleep medicine or a sleep medicine uh, professional to, to ensure that you're getting the sleep you need. Terrific. Okay. Well, we are out of time. I'm sure we could talk a lot more all night about sleep if we were going to stay up that late. But I want to thank <laughs> Dr. Eric Prather and everyone who's joined us here for this important Commonwealth Club program. I also want to thank Wonderfest for its support and partnership with us on this program. And I encourage everyone to purchase a copy of Eric Prather's new book, The Sleep Prescription, wherever books are sold. I'm Mark Zitter. I'm heading home now to get a good night's sleep, as I hope all of you do too. And we are adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.